It's October 30th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got an update about the war in the Middle East for you this morning that is shaping America and the world. We'll start in the Gaza Strip with the latest on Israel's ground operations with analysis of what we are likely to see next as Israel ramps up its use of military drones and robots. Second, we will talk about conditions inside the Gaza Strip with civilians still under siege there this morning, all while Hamas's leadership hoards fuel, food, supplies, and billions of dollars in cash. Third, we will talk about what is happening in the region this morning with the president of Turkey, speaking to millions of his citizens, saying that Hamas is a liberation group, not a terrorist organization. Finally, I'll share the latest on how this war is impacting us here at home, with Joe Biden continuing to balance his military and political responses to this crisis. Plus, we'll talk about how this growing war might actually be secretly coordinated by leaders in Russia, Iran, and China, all to weaken us. Later, we will close out the podcast with my reflections on some interviews that were given this weekend in New York City. Arabs were cheering on Hamas and saying that Israel and Jews must be destroyed. But first, let's head off to the Gaza Strip this morning for the latest. On Saturday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced to his nation that the ground operation against Hamas and the Gaza Strip had begun. Quote, this is the second stage of the war whose goals are clear, to destroy Hamas's governing and military capabilities and bring the hostages home, end quote. He then called it our second war of independence. He went on to say that the operation in Gaza would be long and difficult, launched in small phases, subduing bits and pieces of Gaza, as it were, then holding those small chunks of land and then eventually advancing. To that point, Israel sent in small numbers of tanks and soldiers into the Gaza Strip over the weekend to especially target the Hamas tunnel networks. Indeed, there were 150 strikes at least on the tunnels there over the weekend. Tunnels that actually we should talk about, as they will be a very critical part of the fighting in the months to come. So to do that, let's start with some history. Back in the 1990s, Palestinian groups started building tunnel networks running throughout the Gaza Strip, but especially into Egypt. So the goal was, and still is, to smuggle in things like weapons, food, and alcohol. And they're smuggling this stuff in because the Egyptian and Israeli governments put Gaza under a blockade over 15 years ago when the terror group Hamas took over Gaza. Now, since then, it's been a game of, well, kind of whack-a-mole, right? Both governments, both the Israelis and the Egyptians, they'll find a tunnel, destroy it, and then, well, the Gazans will rebuild it. In fact, Egypt has long flooded those tunnels with either seawater or sewage when they have discovered them. The Israelis have done that as well. But make no mistake, folks, these tunnels are absolutely formidable, very deep, in some cases over 130 feet down, but they're actually large enough to stand up in with rooms for sleeping and eating, meeting, and of course, building weaponry. There's also power and communication lines that run through the cement walls of the tunnels, which actually helps explain in part why Hamas was able to pull off their terror attacks three weeks ago, all because their communication systems were closed loop. In other words, no cell towers or easily accessed telephone lines. 
In other words, these tunnels represent sort of an underground city with thousands and thousands of Hamas terrorists and sadly, over 200 hostages. They are still being held by Hamas and mostly in these tunnels. Now, ironically, some of the hostages are almost certainly being held in the tunnels underneath uh, Gaza's uh, main hospital. It's called Al-Shifa. For folks unaware, Hamas digs tunnels and weapons facilities and puts them underneath key civilian infrastructure like hospitals and schools and residential buildings. And they do that believing that Israel would not strike them for fear of, well, killing a lot of civilians and international outrage. In other words, human shields. For the record, Hamas denies doing this, but I can tell you from my own sources and experiences, Hamas is lying. By the way, if you're wondering how Israel is going to search and destroy these, what is, hundreds of miles of tunnels in the Gaza Strip, well, we're going to be talking about this probably quite a bit over the next few months, but here's one thing for you to know as of now. Robots and drones, they are going to be important, folks. So let's talk about them. Here's something that you might not know. Israel is one of the most advanced nations when it comes to drone and robotic technology. They have used this stuff to conduct some pretty incredible operations deep inside of Iran and Lebanon. Now, increasingly, Israeli drones and robots are infused with artificial intelligence, and that allows them to fly or move into enemy territory to either collect intelligence or even blow up and kill targets. And here's what's important. That AI and these AI-infused systems also allows the drones and robots to uh, conduct operations without the involvement of humans. In other words, operators dictate the, the, the target or the mission to the drones, and then these machines fly off to do the work without any connection or a tether to a human. And that is what Israel is likely to use in those Hamas tunnels where they would otherwise lose signal. By the way, if you want to explore the types of drones and robots that the Israelis are likely to use, I have some great links in the transcripts for paid subscribers. The point, folks, is that Israel is moving forward with its ground operations as of this morning. And when you combine that with its air assaults, we are likely to see some pretty intense and nasty fighting and destruction over the next week or more. But perhaps a lot of that fighting is going to be done outside of the view of cameras and that vast tunnel network in the Gaza Strip. And that takes us to our second update of the morning, my friends, with a focus now on the conditions inside the Gaza Strip for those two plus million Palestinians. There is growing civil unrest throughout Gaza this morning as civilians are breaking into humanitarian aid centers and stealing and looting whatever supplies they can get a hold of. That includes, by the way, some 600 Palestinian Americans who are trapped inside of Gaza and can't get out. Now, that said, there is some modestly good news on the humanitarian front. Egypt allowed in 50 more aid trucks over the weekend with food and water, medicines, enough medicine, actually, for 300,000 people for the next three months. So that brings the total number of aid trucks that have been allowed in so far to 115. Some humanitarian groups, however, say that the 115 is not sufficient, just a drop in the bucket, utterly inadequate, they say. I should note, though, that it was Cairo and its officials that this weekend who opened and then very quickly shut the Rafah border crossing with Gaza. And that is because, as listeners know, the Egyptians are very anxious about opening up that Rafah border crossing. Two reasons. Egypt, first of all, fears that Gazans will rush and overwhelm the border. 
And they don't want the burden of caring for so many refugees, upwards of one to two million. And second, Cairo fears a flood of Palestinians coming into their country who embrace radical Islamist views, namely those of the Muslim Brotherhood. Indeed, Egypt has fought that group and their ideology for decades. For what it's worth, the Egyptians, uh, they're specifically their military officials, are redoubling their efforts to find and destroy Hamas's tunnels into their country. But there is a fair amount of corruption within the Egyptian military, so that is making things a little bit difficult to shut down. Next, we should talk about what the Israelis did over the weekend to the communication systems inside the Gaza Strip. They knocked them out. Whether, whether that be the internet, cell phone connectivity, and GPS functionality. Now, as to that GPS issue, the Israelis have historically spoofed GPS systems to limit the reach and accuracy of GPS-guided missiles, normally the ones coming from Hezbollah up north. For what it's worth, though, the Israelis are refusing to confirm what they did or didn't do over the weekend regarding communications uh, systems within Gaza. The Israeli Defense Force offered no comment over the weekend when asked. Now, as of this recording, some cell and internet connectivity is coming back online in the Gaza Strip. Satellite operations are as well, including from Elon Musk's Starlink system. But we should expect that connectivity will come and go over the next few weeks and months as operations kick up. Speaking of, some Gaza residents have given up, ignoring the safer areas what they were told to go to in the southern part of Gaza, and instead they're heading back to their homes in the north. And that is because Israel is conducting air operations in both the north and the south. So the logic of at least some Palestinians is, well, if they're going to be hit, might as well be at home. Or as one Gazan put it recently, quote, if I die, I die at home. So to that point, the Hamas health ministry continues to report the number that they say have died over the past three weeks. But the number can't be confirmed. Or as Joe Biden recently said, the U.S. government has no faith in that Hamas Ministry of Health that reports anything about those folks who have died in the Gaza Strip. But that uh, aside, folks, what satellite images make very clear is that at least 10% of Gaza's buildings have been destroyed so far in this war over the past three weeks. So without a doubt, without a question, some considerable number of Palestinians have almost certainly been killed. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. For paid subscribers listening at rightreport.substack.com, thank you. Hope you are enjoying the transcripts with all the sourcing for today's report, plus that ad-free experience. Meanwhile, for my other loyal listeners, an equal thanks. We'll be right back. Folks, they said it couldn't be done. Industry experts said that America could never rebuild its textile industry to once again make clothes in America for the American people. But those experts were wrong. A giant proved them wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to proudly introduce you to the company American Giant. They make clothing right here in the United States. And they do so for men and women alike. They've got shirts and hoodies, polos, jeans, jackets. You name it, American Giant makes it. But it is not just some company making stuff. It is seamsters, cutters, factory workers, your neighbors in towns and cities across the U.S. who are reopening factories to once again bring together pride, purpose, and people. So if there were ever a time to show your support for this country and get a high-quality product in return, the time is now. And the company is American Giant. 
And if you do, folks, if you buy clothes from American Giant, I'm going to save you some money. 20% off your first order. So here's how you do it. Just go to American-Giant.com. And once there, you've got a whole range of categories to choose from for what it's worth. I love their hoodies. I'm telling you, you put this thing on and you can just feel the sturdiness. You just know it is so well made. So fill up that wardrobe. Get your fall and winter clothes right now at American-Giant.com. Use promo code right at checkout and you are going to get 20% off your first order. Again, that is 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code right. Folks, let's rebuild this country and let's make America giant. Well, the world is just awful lately, isn't it? And sometimes it makes you just want to crawl into bed and scream into your mattress to make it all go away. Well, if you do, just make sure that your mattress is made by GhostBed. Seriously, folks, GhostBed makes the finest mattresses on the market today with craftsmanship and high-quality materials that you can feel as you fall asleep. And I would know. I have their Lux model, and I bought it because I sleep hot. And that thing helps keep me cool all night long for a great night's sleep. Now, People have asked, how does this technology work to cool you? I don't know. Magic? Maybe little elves in there somewhere with ice cubes? Probably. But it doesn't matter. Their mattresses, ladies and gentlemen, are top notch. And if you don't believe me, that's okay. They have a 101-day trial period plus free shipping and returns, so you can try it out in the comfort of your own home. So go to ghostbed.com backslash right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T. And you can explore all of their incredible models. And right now, they are giving my listeners 40% off their GhostBed purchases. But you got to use that code right. Again, go to ghostbed.com backslash right, W-R-I-G-H-T, and get yourself the good night's sleep that you deserve. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with our continued special coverage of the war in the Middle East. We now pivot to both regional and global reactions to this escalating conflict. First, countries around the world are increasingly calling on Israel to stop or pause its military operations inside the Gaza Strip. Now, many of those opposed to this conflict are Arab or Muslim-majority countries, which we would expect them to be opposed to this. For instance, the president of Turkey spoke to upwards of one million of his citizens at a rally over the weekend, and he said a number of things, doozies all. He said, for instance, that Hamas is a legitimate resistance organization. And actually, it's Israel and the West, the United States, that are responsible for all of the violence. He added that America and Israel are much like the Crusaders from a thousand years ago when Christians were battling the Muslims for the ownership of the Holy Lands. And that kind of talk, not only is it inflammatory, folks, it is very important for us to know for two reasons. First, there are now signs going up around Istanbul saying that Jews are not welcome. We all know what that means from our history. Second, Turkey is a longtime member of our military alliance that's called NATO. And at one of our military bases in Turkey, we park around 50 nuclear warheads. Now, it is true. We control them. But it is something important to consider with this latest rhetoric out of Mr. Erdogan, the president. Meanwhile, in the Arab country of Qatar this morning, some modestly better news. Hamas leaders there are meeting with Israeli officials to conduct some quiet diplomacy over the issues of hostages and perhaps an eventual de-escalation of the war. 
Now, those negotiations have slowed uh, over the weekend since Israel launched its new ground operations, but negotiations do continue, at least as of this recording. Next, the Russians, oh dear, they are chiming in this morning saying that Israel is violating international law with these Gaza operations. The Russian foreign minister said over the weekend that Israel's actions are unsettling the region and will cost people for decades to come, in addition to being a violation of international law. Well, that is all very quite interesting, isn't it, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine? But putting that aside... Mr. Putin of Moscow, of course, is backing Hamas as of this weekend and indeed as of this morning. And actually, he asked Hamas over the weekend to please release some Russians that Hamas had kidnapped back on October 7th. Interestingly, Hamas initially said that all the hostages that they took were Israelis. But now they are looking for at least eight Russians that are being hidden somewhere in all of those tunnels in Gaza. Speaking of Hamas and hostages, the British media outlet BBC, they interviewed a senior Hamas official named Ghazi Hamad over the weekend. Now, during this interview, Mr. Hamad stormed out when he was pressed about Hamas killing Israeli citizens back on October 7th. Now, this Hamas guy, he said no such thing happened, that it was a conspiracy theory. And then he left the interview when the reporter said, no, Hamas definitely killed women and children. In other words, folks, that is the messaging that we should expect moving forward from Hamas and Arab governments. They are going to claim that no innocent Israelis were ever killed by Hamas. That's just a Zionist conspiracy. Well, meanwhile, hundreds of thousands to millions of people all around the world are continuing to march and protest in support of Palestinians and Hamas. From Iraq to New Zealand, of all places, pro-Hamas and pro-Gaza supporters demanded a cessation of hostilities or for Israel to be removed from the Middle East. One of the largest protests was actually in London over the weekend. Around 70,000 people, mostly leftists and migrants from the Middle East, demanded that Israel stop its efforts in Gaza or be removed altogether from the Middle East. They also claimed this weekend, these various protesters around the world, that Israel is committing human rights violations and war crimes. So for folks interested, I've got an explainer in the transcripts if you want to explore what the law actually says about conflicts like this. The upshot is it's a little less clear than what some of these protesters would like for you to believe. For what it's worth, Israel this morning is saying that it does not care about these protests globally. They are not going to stop their operations. Although, on a related note, two interesting developments amongst Israelis themselves. A poll out late last week showed that about half of Israelis want to pause any large-scale Gaza operations. And that might help partly explain why uh, Israel is now opting for smaller incursions, at, at least for now. Second, While some Israelis might not want a bigger war, they do want one thing, guns, lots more guns. Consider this, last year at this time, there were 42 applications for a civilian gun permit, 42. This year, 150,000. That was reported by Reuters News Service over the weekend. And that takes us to our final update of the morning regarding this ongoing and escalating war in the Middle East. As we always ask, How is this going to affect us? And what exactly is the Biden White House doing about this war to either get us further involved or to pull us out? Well, here's what we know this morning. 
The Pentagon has sent an additional 900 troops to the Middle East as part of the individuals that were operating and are operating our missile defense systems. Those were all deployed and rushed out to the Middle East last week. Those systems will now better defend the several thousand U.S. troops that are still in Iraq and a smaller number in Syria. Meanwhile, the Pentagon has also sent over a three-star Marine Corps general to advise the Israeli military on how they might conduct this ground operation. For what it's worth, the Marine Corps general was deeply involved in previous U.S. military operations in Iraq and elsewhere in the Middle East. Now, whether or not this Marine stays in Israel for the duration of conflict is unclear this morning, but he's there for now to offer advice. Finally, U.S. forces struck two alleged weapons depots in the country of Syria over the weekend, weapons that were apparently being used either by Hamas or by the Iranian-backed Hezbollah terror organization. The Pentagon took credit for the strikes, but not much else has been reported, at least as of this recording. So those are the latest updates regarding the U.S. military operations in the Middle East this morning. Let's now talk about what the White House is saying and doing. And that's because, as I shared with you on Friday, Mr. Biden and his administration are trying to balance two very different challenges. On one hand, they've got the military response, both on a tactical and a strategic level. And second, on the other hand, they've got their domestic political response. So let's talk about the former concern of military operations, both tactical and strategic. And this is a big piece of news, folks. The White House is increasingly believing that this war will expand into a greater Middle Eastern conflict amongst the many Arab nations and Israel. Now, part of the concern is based on the rhetoric that we have been talking about for weeks now coming out of Arab countries, including, as I just shared with you this morning, Turkey, Egypt, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. The other part of the concern, though, is this, and this is new, the possibility that Iran, Russia, and China are coordinating their activities around the world to escalate their conflicts in places like Israel, Ukraine, and the South China Sea. Now, to understand this alarming and growing concern, let's refresh our memories about the special report that I gave you back on October 9th, and again, throughout the past three weeks. So in short, if you remember from the 9th, I asked us to think about how this war might be viewed in Moscow, or most especially in Beijing. So, for instance, in China, might they see an elderly American president struggling with his cognition, perhaps even dementia? Plus, knowing that our country is deeply divided politically, we are also deeply indebted and we are terribly stretched thin with now two wars, one in Ukraine and the other in Israel. So perhaps China might think to itself, perhaps this is the moment to move on Taiwan and take it back. Well, over the weekend, with that background in mind, the media outlet Semaphore published anonymous officials within the Biden White House and Intel community saying that they are debating whether the Russians, the Chinese and the Iranians are collaborating to ultimately challenge or overwhelm America's ability to respond to what would be three theaters of war in Europe, the Middle East and Asia. So for what it's worth, this Semaphore article matches the conversations that I've been having with some of my old friends about where everything that we're seeing now in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia are headed. So I will simply say this to you now, and we're going to keep talking about this, but I can't give you a high-confidence assessment of the degree to which these three countries are coordinating their international operations. But the general and growing fear is that we are witnessing 
the early stages of a broader global war. More to come on that in the weeks and months ahead, folks. With that, let's take our final break of the morning on what is a special report on this growing war in the Middle East. When we come back, we are going to talk about what Mr. Biden and his party are doing politically, domestically to handle this crisis, all to ensure his reelection next year. Plus, we are going to talk about what is happening on our streets as leftist and anti-Jewish groups continue their protests all throughout America. I've got a pretty shocking series of interviews to tell you about that happened over the weekend in New York City. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with a special report this morning on the growing war in the Middle East. As the White House prepares for the military implications of this escalating conflict in the Middle East, it also has political considerations. As listeners know from last Friday and other briefs, Mr. Biden is running for re-election and he needs two very different wings of his party to win back the White House. Now, one wing is made up of a traditional set of Democrats that typically includes Jewish Americans, but the other wing are those Muslim Americans and leftists who are absolutely anti-Israel and anti-Jewish and in some cases pro-Hamas. So to refresh our memories on that, especially from Friday's report, Mr. Biden's initial reaction of when uh, the Israelis were attacked, he supported Israel. And that did not go over very well with those folks who were anti-Israel and pro-Hamas wing members of the Democrat Party. And that reaction, that negative reaction to Mr. Biden's support of Israel, that is why we have a poll that came out last week from Gallup organization that showed that Biden's approval rating dropped 11 points amongst Democrats over the past three weeks. So with that refresh, let's talk about four pieces of new developing news. First, the Washington Post and other leftist outlets over the weekend reported on how Biden and his party are now scrambling to shore up support from that anti-Israel and pro-Hamas wing of the party. To the point, the White House asked Arab groups to come meet with Mr. Biden or his advisors at the White House, but many refused. Instead, they had a condition. They would only come for a meeting if Biden acknowledged the official death count of Palestinians that is put forward by Hamas and their health ministry. So far, Mr. Biden has refused to do that. So let's watch and see what happens on that. Second, according to the Washington Post, Biden for the first time is pushing Israel to pause its fighting, all to deliver humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. He announced that embrace of a pause over the weekend. Third, Biden and his team are now pivoting to a greater emphasis on protecting Palestinians. Yesterday, the White House said, quote, Israel must operate in a manner consistent with international humanitarian law that prioritizes the protection of civilians, end quote. And that is a change from last week when Mr. Biden's team said that they would accept civilian casualties as just a matter of principle, saying that, quote, this is war, end quote. The White House is now highlighting and criticizing Israel for its citizens who are attacking Palestinians in the West Bank. For folks unaware, there are reports of dozens to about 100 Palestinians who have been injured or killed since October 7th, all by Israelis who are seeking retribution for Hamas and their terror attacks three weeks ago. So those are the four big pivots that Mr. Biden and his team have made from Friday through the weekend. And we should expect to see more of this, ladies and gentlemen, all because of Mr. Biden's desire to be reelected next year. They need this far leftist wing of the party. Very, very important in places like Michigan, Pennsylvania and New York. 
And speaking of that last date, we close out the podcast today with events from New York City over the weekend. Anti-Israel and pro-Hamas protesters in New York City shut down Grand Central Station on Friday. Then the next day, another 7,000 or so protesters shut down the Brooklyn Bridge, demanding the elimination of Israel, quote, by any means necessary, end quote. My goodness. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, the New York Post interviewed some of the protesters from Friday and Saturday, including Arab migrants in New York City. The Post asked these folks what they thought of the escalating war into Israel, and here is some of what they said. Quote, I am Muslim. I am Egyptian. We support Gaza. End quote. Here's another one. Quote, Hamas does not attack Israel. Hamas defends herself. Hamas is self-defense to protect Islam. The Jews must leave our land. Israel must leave. Israel is not a real state. End quote. Lastly, another Arab migrant refused to even talk to the Post because, quote, the Post writes all that Jew stuff, end quote. And those reactions, folks, probably helps explain the poll that I shared with you last week that noted that about 60% of American Muslims support Hamas and justified their terror attacks. And, you know, let's just be very clear what 60%, 60% of American Muslims are supporting here, right? The media outlet NPR, they published a piece late Friday night that went to, uh, into some pretty graphic detail about the Hamas attacks. And just fair warning, this next part is graphic. So there's one video that NPR watched and reported on, and it came from a body cam of a Hamas member. So this guy wounded an Israeli man and then began to cut his head off with a knife. But that apparently was not working fast enough or sufficiently enough, so he finished the job with a garden hoe. Next. NPR wrote about another Palestinian Hamas member who was inside the home of an Israeli family that he had just butchered, and he called his parents on his cell phone to celebrate killing what was 10 Israelis, to which when his mother got on the line, she celebrated. And she said, quote, oh, my son, may God protect you, end quote. So, ladies and gentlemen, those are the facts and data that came in from Friday throughout the weekend on what appears to be an escalating war in the Middle East. Let's recap, shall we, what we've covered this morning. Israel has launched its ground operations with a considerable increase of its air campaign and new ground forces with limited incursions. We're likely to see more of this with a heavy emphasis and use of drones and robots infused with AI, all operating in those hundreds of miles of tunnels that Hamas uses to store, well, food, fuel, medicines, weapons, and of course their fighters, and we shouldn't forget, over 200 hostages. Meanwhile, much of the rest of the world is increasingly agitated with Israel, demanding a cessation of what they call its hostilities in the Gaza Strip. Those protests are mostly coming from folks who are on the left, plus Muslims and Arabs in not only the Middle East, but also Asia, Europe, and the United States. And that global agitation, that is being felt all the way to and inside of the White House this morning, as Mr. Biden is trying to thread this political needle of increasing our military posture in the region, while also attending to and embracing this anti-Israel or pro-Hamas wing of his Democrat party. But what I would like us to focus on today as we close out the podcast, my friends, 
is that quiet concern that I mentioned earlier amongst America's spies and diplomats that this war is part of an effort by Russia, Iran, and China to collaborate and ultimately weaken America, to spread us thin, and ultimately launch a global war with three theaters of conflict. So to talk about that, let me now pivot from facts and data to my analysis and opinion. Well, friends, this issue is what I first warned you of back on October 9th. And it's why I've been sharing details with you about that second Thomas Shoal in the South China Sea. I've also been telling you about the shortage of artillery shells that have been taken up in our bogged down war in Ukraine with the Russians. And now we've got this widening effort by Arab governments to to make this conflict really about their long running anger about Israel simply existing in the Middle East. They think that the decisions back in 1947 and 48 were disastrous and Israel should not exist. So stepping back a bit, let's do a little bit of a thought experiment, shall we? Let's ask ourselves, if Russia, China, and the Middle East, with the Iranians most certainly, if they are increasingly united in a coalition, who's on our side as we build our coalition? Right? Who's going to be on our side if we have a three-theater series of wars in Asia, the Middle East, and Europe? Well, traditionally, it would have been the Europeans, but not now because they have nothing to offer us. Nothing. As I've briefed you on, oh gosh, many times over the past six months, nine months, Europe's militaries are a shell of what they used to be. As just one example, recall my briefs on Germany, which just in August backtracked on its pledge to bolster its military spending, and instead they're expanding their welfare payments. In other words, folks, we are alone in this fight if we go into three theaters. And we will not be able to handle that, not without getting very bloody and God forbid, up to and including a nuclear response. And that's because our conventional forces and our logistics chains, they can't handle that much conflict in all three theaters, especially, ladies and gentlemen, when those logistics, when those require supplies and goods that are made in China. So we're in trouble. We've got some pathetic allies in Europe an overstretched military, a supply chain that is dependent on China, with the man in the White House that, well, if you look at polls, show that most Americans think is old and corrupt. But that's not the worst of it, at least not in my view. Right, A shocking number of your fellow Americans, namely and especially on the left, actually hate America or capitalism or both. In other words, folks, unlike different times in U.S. history, There is no moment coming where we rally around the flag. And that's because a shocking number of people in this country hate that flag. They hate our country. In fact, they want to burn it all down. So that is what we are up against in this grave and profound moment in U.S. history. So as for what direction this all goes in, well, I have no idea. I have spoken with some old friends, and we are all in agreement that Predicting much of anything at this point is just impossible. There are too many variables, too many competing agendas to know where they will all fall. But I know this. If you are a praying person, boy, you might want to pray a little bit harder. I am. And if you are a voter, get to the polls, whether that be in local primaries and general elections, and grab some friends as you do, because they matter. 
What we all do over the next year to two will matter for decades to come. And not just for us, but for the kids and the grandkids as they inherit whatever it is that we give them. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. If you would like any of the sources for today's episode, please go to writereport.substack.com, become a paid subscriber, and enjoy the daily emails with the ad-free podcast and all those great transcripts with the sources. As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC.